message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're with us, especially if you're a guest this morning. My name is Michael, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grace. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you will want to turn it to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, or Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm sorry. And the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for examples of words that can change your life. Second, be listening for how God's Word can be painful. And third, be listening for a definition of fear. How would you define fear? Well, as you know, this is the portion of our service where we open the Bible in hopes of understanding what it says and how it applies to our specific lives. And over the past few weeks, we've been engaged in a sermon series considering the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And last week, we started wrapping up our sermon series on this Old Testament book, but we couldn't finish it due to some unforeseen circumstances. And we are so thankful that everyone is okay. And this week, I wondered what we should do about wrapping up this series on Ecclesiastes. Now, if we're ever going to close a book of a Bible without wrapping it up with a nice bow on top, Ecclesiastes would be the perfect book for that. And I know that those of you who were here last week, you've heard the first part of this sermon before, but I can't even remember what I ate for dinner on Thursday night. So I imagine we could always stand to hear refreshers from time to time. So we'll chalk it up to the Lord's providence that we all need to hear these words again, okay? Because we sometimes have a hard time digesting God's Word. So we'll give it one more shot this morning. And if you've been with us over the past few months, you know that this book, it can be confusing. It can be frustrating. It can be discouraging. It can be enlightening too. It can be intriguing. And if we'll follow it, this is a book that can help us navigate life through this fallen world with a realistic hope. The preacher, he comes and he disorients us. He perplexes us as he considers what life under the sun looks like. Yet his words are important. And we feel the reality of the mysteries that he talks about. We don't always understand life and death, health and illness, wealth and poverty, war and peace, joy and sadness. But we take comfort to know that we experience all of these things under the control of a loving God. In short, the book of Ecclesiastes comes to us and simply states what is true and how we experience life in this world Whether talking about the agonies of old age or the anguish of losing a fortune, the preacher never holds back from telling us what life is like in this fallen world. And up until now, we've considered what the preacher has to to say. But now as we consider the conclusion of this book, the last few verses, we turn to the way that he said it. And at the end of his work, the preacher gives his final conclusion and his summary. And what we learn is how important heeding wisdom can be in our lives. So to see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then skipping down to the conclusion of the book in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. 
The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Well, we all know how powerful words can be. We talked about it last week. Words have the power to bring life or death to a situation. They have the power to encourage someone or discourage them. They have the power to bring perspective or confusion. Words are powerful. You might say that words can change things. You think of words like, I love you, or I'm sorry, or I'm pregnant, or I'm proud of you. Words, they carry weight. They have the ability to move us. Words can make someone weep, blush, rage, or roar with laughter. In short, words, they birth emotion and they push us into action. In words, they also reveal things. There there are tools of self-disclosure where we're able to communicate our thoughts and emotions to other people. In fact, most theologians would say that our ability to use words to communicate in rational and meaningful ways is just one aspect of us being made in God's image. We communicate because God himself is one who communicates and we're made in his image. And as creatures made in the Creator's image, we were made to receive words, to receive knowledge, to listen well to the words of God so that we might know Him better and walk in freedom. One pastor, in reflecting on the importance of listening, says, Ecclesiastes has shown us that the primary sense organs of the Christian faith are our ears. To know God, we need to be able to hear Him. All book long, the preacher has been speaking the very words of God, trying to dispense wisdom so that we might know how to walk through this fallen world. Putting words to our human experience as we live what he says or calls under the sun. And in his conclusion, the preacher sits us down one last time to be sure that we understand how his words work. To reaffirm what his intentions have been in writing these words down for us. The conclusion of this book, which is found in verses 9 through 12, it provides a mini commentary on the book. These verses explain why and how this wise preacher did what he did with words. And they explain what their intended effect is supposed to be. The preacher is one who looked around and he captured the complexity and the bewilderment of life. And he wrote it all down for us. He studied people and situation and events in all their regularity and randomness, and he wrote down what he observed. And in these verses, the preacher reflects on his completed work. In this work, it's a gift to us. We believe that these are God's very words, black ink on white paper, given to us for our encouragement and to make us wise. In the book of Hebrews, we're reminded that God's word is powerful. It has the ability to change us. That God's word is living and active that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it can pierce the soul, it can discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. No other book can be described that way. And as we consider the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, we are invited to reflect on different aspects of God's Word to us. 
to rejoice in what God's Word brings to our lives. And as we look at this passage, I want us to see that God's Word brings pleasure, it brings pain, and it brings perspective. Pleasure, pain, and perspective. Those are our three points this morning. Let's begin by refreshing ourselves, if you were here last week, by looking at how God's Word brings pleasure. We see the pleasure and delight that God's Word brings in verses 9 and 10 where the preacher says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher was very careful in arranging his words so that God's people might grow up in wisdom and knowledge so that they might live realistically in this world, so that they might be equipped to walk in faithfulness, so that they might experience the freedom that God's paths bring. We also see that the preacher wrote these words to bring us pleasure. He wanted to pass along words that are true and good and beautiful. He calls them delightful. And this is true of the book of Ecclesiastes on a micro level, but it's also true of the entirety of God's word on a macro level. There is nothing like God's Word. Talked about it last week. Nothing like the comfort and the hope and the encouragement and the peace that God's Word can bring to your life. Especially in times of confusion or fear or grief. It's in times like that where we find God's Word to be living and active, where it still speaks to us in a very real way, where God's Word brings comfort in ways that no human words ever could. There's nothing like God's Word. We think of the comfort that passages like Psalm 23, Romans 8, Revelation 21 have brought to the saints through the centuries. We mentioned last week when you were facing cancer or serious surgery or strong temptation or death, you do not want another person's opinion in that moment. You don't want another person's sentimental phrases. What you want is the weightiness and the sobriety and the beauty that God's Word can bring in the darkest of hours. Last week I mentioned that this truth, it reminds me of a friend of mine who was diagnosed with cancer a few years back in his early 40s, and he was a minister in California planning a church. I remember we would go to many conferences together as we were preparing to plant together, and his cancer was aggressive, and it eventually confined him to a hospital bed hundreds of miles away from his home where he was seeking treatment, and he got so weak that he couldn't be discharged back home. He was going to end his life there away from where he should have been. And he had a wife and four beautiful young children at the time. And as he was battling cancer, growing weaker and weaker, nearing the end, another one of my friends, he flew across the country to visit him. This friend was also a minister. And this friend who visited said that he thought he would simply swing into the hospital, read a few scripture passages and pray and say his final goodbyes. He thought maybe the visit would last 30 minutes. After all, this friend wanted to be sensitive to the fact that this man's strength was gone. But my friend said that after he had gotten done reading the scripture he had planned to read, my dying friend spoke up and said, please read some more. And when he thought he was done, he said again, please read some more. And he kept asking to hear more of God's word read. And my visiting friend said that he was running out of ideas of what would be good to read. But my dying friend didn't want the reading of God's word to stop. All he wanted was to hear scripture read, to keep reading, please read some more. And what was intended to be a quick visit went on for hours. God's Word providing hope, comfort, living and active in that moment. There's nothing like God's Word. 
I had another minister friend recount going to the home of a family who had recently lost a young child, and he said that it would have been foolish in that situation to offer his own words of encouragement. But he said that God's word proved to be weighty enough and sober enough in that situation to provide comfort. And he leaned on it. Another small example that God's word is beautiful, that it's living and active, that it can carry the weight of the destruction that sin brings to this world, that only God's word can provide the hope and the comfort that we so often desperately need. There are no words more delightful or truthful than the words of Scripture. They're living and active. They're powerful. They're delightful. They're weighty enough for all of life. And they can speak to us in supernatural ways. But they can sometimes be hard to receive. God's Word can be painful at times. We see the pain that God's Word brings in verse 11 where the preacher writes, The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, it's worth noting that this is the first time the word shepherd is used in Ecclesiastes. And in this instance, since it hasn't been used before, the preacher is likely referring to the Lord here. One shepherd, Yahweh. And the words he conveys have been given to him by the Lord as a gift to share with God's people. And if we need words that are given by a shepherd, it implicitly says something about us, doesn't it? If we need a shepherd, that means that you and I are sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, you know that they're not the brightest animals. They're prone to wonder. They're prone to get into trouble and then be pulled out of trouble and then get into trouble again. They're not really able to care for themselves. Now, I don't want to offend anyone this morning... But if we ran with the imagery of Scripture, we'd have to admit that we're not the brightest creatures. We need a shepherd. We need all the help we can get to keep going down the proper path. All the help we can get to stay out of trouble. So the shepherd gives us sharp words sometimes. It's what the preacher's getting at when he says that the words of the wise are like goads and nails firmly fixed. Now you might be wondering, what in the world is a goad? Well, that's a good question because it's not something that we're familiar with in our culture. A goad is a sharp stick that's used by herd drivers to keep animals going on a straight path. If an animal starts to veer to the right or to the left, or if it stops altogether, the farmer would use a goad, this sharp stick, to keep the animal on a straight path and moving forward. A goad would stick and prod an animal to keep it moving down the right path. The only way that animal could avoid pain was to go the way the shepherd wanted it to go. And the preacher is saying that God's word can sometimes work like a goad. It prods us, it sticks us, so that we might walk down the right paths and keep moving forward. And it goes without saying that no creature wants to be poked by a goad. It doesn't feel too good. But according to the preacher, it's done for a positive reason. God's discipline is for our good. He guides those that he loves. And God's Word can act like a goad. It gives us guidance in the way we should walk. And these sharp words come directly from the Lord, from the one shepherd. So what does this practically mean for us? Well, at least one thing it means is that God, if, God, if God's Word never prods you, if it never pokes against you, if it never challenges you, if it never changes your course, you should wonder why. After all, that's what God's Word is intended to do in our lives. 
I love how Pastor Tim Keller gets at this idea in his excellent book, The Reason for God, when he says, and it's printed for you in the bulletin, front page of your bulletin. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It's the precondition for it. Do you ever allow God's word to challenge you? Have you ever done something that you didn't want to do? Or have you ever changed the way you view the world because of what you've read in God's word? Even when you don't personally like it. Do you ever expect to be surprised and challenged and corrected by God's word? If God's word is true, even when it's hard to receive, we should expect those sort of things. Those are questions that we should all reflect on from time to time. I love how Philip Ryken puts it when he says, you will know that you know God when sometimes what he says makes you weep as he humbles your pride, reverses your expectations, upsets your priorities, offends your behavior, challenges your thinking. Not only should God's word challenge us, the preacher says that the words of the shepherd are like nails firmly fixed. The preacher's communicating an image of permanence and stability here. The words of the wise provide moral and intellectual stability like nails firmly fixed. In a world where so much is unfixed, where there is lots of impermanence and instability, we are meant to weigh things against God's word. What does he say? How does he provide guidance and stability? through lots of different cultural and moral moments. We can look to God's Word for those things. And as the preacher mentioned, we are ultimately meant to recognize that all such wisdom is given by one shepherd, by God Himself, as He seeks to lead His creatures along the proper path, along paths that lead to flourishing and freedom. So we have to allow God's Word to bring us pain from time to time, to to poke us, to prod us, to challenge us. And lastly, we have to consider how God's Word is meant to bring us perspective. We see the perspective that God's Word brings in verses 13 and 14 where we read, you can look at it, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The preacher says that the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep His commandments. The most important thing anyone could do, in other words, is to fear God and keep His commandments. Now, fear, that's an interesting word. If you've been around the church for a while, you likely have heard it defined in a number of different ways. But what does it mean to fear God? Well, it kind of reminds me of Michael Scott from The Office when he says, would I rather be loved or feared? And he says, both. I want people to fear how much they love me. And it's actually not a bad way to think about the fear of the Lord. Charles Bridges defines the fear of the Lord as the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to follow his father's law. The Hebrew word for fear means reverence and honor. We should revere the Lord. We should honor the Lord. And as we do, we're fearing him. We're fearing the Lord. 
Now, you don't need to be told that we are constantly bending ourselves to something. We're always conforming to some way. And as we do, what we're doing is showing fear or reverence for that thing. In other words, we all fear something. We all honor and revere certain things in life. And we seek to keep lots of different commands in our life, you might say. I wonder what it is for you. Maybe you fear and seek to keep the commands that other people's opinion places on you. Maybe you fear government and politics and play by the rules set by our culture instead of by God's Word. Maybe you fear a loss of control and play by those rules. Maybe you fear getting older and aging and losing beauty and you wear yourself out with exercise and diet. You are bending yourself to something, fearing something. Maybe you fear a loss of control and seek to account for every small thing in your life. Maybe you fear the future and seek to plan in such a way that nothing is out of place. We all fear. But against all that misplaced fear, verse 13 shows us what it looks like to walk faithfully, to fear God and keep His commands. It's what we are created to do. It's our whole duty. Why do you need to be a certain kind of employee or child or spouse or friend or citizen or church member? Why are you called to love and serve others? What is the reason why you walk in integrity on a daily basis. First and foremost, we do it because we love, we fear, we revere, we honor the Lord. Because we want to conform our lives to His Word. Because we're living before an audience of one, first and foremost. If we honor and revere God, if we fear Him, we'll want to keep His commands. We'll want to walk in His ways. You might say fear leads to faithfulness. We are faithful to what we appropriately fear. And it's supposed to be the Lord, but like we just mentioned, it's a lot of different things in our lives. We are faithful to what we appropriately fear. And that's perspective for how we live in the here and now. But Ecclesiastes goes further and reminds us that God will one day soon bring every secret thing, every deed, whether good or bad, into judgment. Ecclesiastes tells us that there are no immediate answers for some things in life, but we should prepare for the end. Every deed is going to come into judgment. And sometimes I have stress dreams. Maybe you have these too. They can be very discomforting where I'm unprepared for a class or a sermon. And in the dream, I'm standing before a large group of people with nothing prepared and nothing to say. And it can be so disturbing until you wake up and realize that everything's all right. That there's still time to get things ready. Well, Ecclesiastes says that there is a day coming when some people will discover that they're not ready for the most important event in the world and it won't be a dream. Ecclesiastes, it's meant to give us perspective. Verse 14 reminds us that everything will one day soon be exposed. And if we really believed that, I'd imagine it would cause a certain degree of anxiety to say the least. I mean, can you imagine having even the secret things of this past week on display for all to see? All your thoughts, all your dark imaginings, all your secret deeds. There will be a reckoning and that can be unsettling. It's an unsettling thought. Judgment can be a scary thing. A lot of things will come to light. And that would bring a certain degree of shame and sorrow for each and every person in this room. 
But the gospel is good news for us because it tells us that if you're in Christ this morning, you don't have to fear judgment. You don't have to fear the day that the preacher is talking about here at the end of Ecclesiastes. Do you want some good news this morning? Some good news as we close our study on Ecclesiastes. Do you want something to tuck away right now and reflect on all week long? Well, you could do worse than this. Here's some good news worthy of that kind of prolonged reflection. If you have placed your faith in Jesus this morning, then your judgment day has gone from something that will happen in the future to something that has already occurred in the past. You do not have to fear the judgment that the preacher is talking about if you have placed your faith in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was experiencing the judgment of God against all the public and all the secret things that we have ever done. He was paying the price that our sin deserved. And now if you're in Christ... There is now no more condemnation for you. Not now, not in the future. Your judgment day has already happened. You're free. And now we get to follow God in newness of life as we seek to remain faithful to Him in this fallen world. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are so thankful for the good news that in Christ there is no condemnation for us. We pray that you would help us to believe that more deeply this morning and to live in light of it this week. We pray that you would encourage us with that hope that our judgment day has been taken from the future and moved to the past, that it has already been taken care of. And Lord, as we seek to follow you, we pray that we might find your word delightful, that we might find your word gives perspective, and that we might be willing to be challenged and corrected by your word. Lord, we confess that you know best. We pray that you would use us and guide us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.